This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in Stockholm, Sweden, which has really been in the international spotlight for several months now due to the different paths Swedish authorities have taken in combating the coronavirus crisis. One place on planet Earth that's managed to avoid COVID-19 is Antarctica, the only continent that so far hasn't had any infections. But that doesn't mean that the crisis hasn't impacted Antarctica. It most certainly has. To learn how the pandemic has disrupted the governance of Antarctica, as well as science and tourism activities there, and possibly influenced the geopolitics of the southern polar region, here in episode 27, we'll be speaking with Alan Hemmings, adjunct associate professor at the Gateway Antarctica Center for Antarctic Studies and Research at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand. He'll be sharing his analysis and some very interesting perspectives on potential short, medium, and long-term effects of the coronavirus crisis on Antarctica. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to remind you to rate, review, and subscribe to Polar Geopolitics wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to find out more about other aspects of the COVID-19 crisis, including the situation here in Sweden and the geopolitics of the pandemic, I can also recommend another podcast I produce, Corona Crisis Once Upon a Pandemic, which is also available wherever you get your podcasts. So now let's head down to New Zealand to hear from Alan Hemmings on how the pandemic is playing out in the realm of Antarctic governance. There are two big annual diplomatic meetings uh, which regulate international human activity in the Antarctic. The Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting and the meeting of the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources. This year's Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting was due to be held in Finland in May, but was cancelled because of COVID-19. The Commission meeting is due to be held in Hobart, where the Secretariat is based and where it's held every year. It's due to be held there at the end of October, first week of November. And in the lead up to that, there's a whole series of technical meetings, specialist input meetings, and they are already beginning to be cancelled, though no decision has yet been taken to cancel the Scientific Committee main meeting or the Commission itself. But it looks pretty certain that those will be cancelled at this point. So the quick answer to your question is there will be no conventional Antarctic diplomatic meetings of the Antarctic Treaty System in 2020 on present trends. Now, I mean, this is not unique to the Antarctic Treaty System. Pretty much everything is being uh, cancelled and disrupted. Is there anything in particular about the ATS that uh, makes this uh, extra problematic, let's say? Well, I think it is, and I can give two sort of fairly quick examples. One is that to the extent that COVID-19 poses a problem for Antarctic operations uh, in, say, the next Antarctic season, the 2020-2021, you would expect the prime international forum for you know, uh, managing human activity, the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting, will have something to say about how we do that. And it would ordinarily depend upon the technical inputs from its advisory groups, most prominently the Committee for Environmental Protection established under the Madrid Protocol to advise it on how it complies with environmental um, obligations under that international agreement. So, for example, if there's any risk that uh, we could have transmission between uh, human beings and uh, native biota, and recall, 
that we've had reports that uh, big cats in zoos in Western countries may have contracted COVID-19, presumably from, from humans. And we do know that seals worldwide tend to be susceptible to viruses which can cross the human phocid boundary. You see that even if this is a remote contingency, this is the kind of thing that we would probably want to be talking about and planning beforehand. Secondly, in, in relation to the Antarctic Treaty and the Madrid Protocol, we're probably not going to see much Antarctic tourism next year or this next Antarctic season. But we want to be sure that tourism vessels, if they do go there, or other national program vessels, uh, are not themselves vectors for moving COVID-19 risk between our Antarctic stations. So those are a couple of things that you would expect the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting to want to consider. If you flip across to the Commission for the Convention on the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, one of the key things that the annual meeting in Hobart does is it allocates catch for finfish and krill particularly to states across a whole series of FAO statistical sub-areas into which the Kamlar area is divided up. If they can't do that, what happens about catch allocation in the Antarctic for the next year, 18 months? That's a big economic issue for some states more, more than others. And if they don't get to make decisions about it, how would that operate? A couple of sort of examples of areas where there's a real active need, I think, for the ATCM and the Kamlar Commission to at least be in a position to give advice and to agree amongst themselves what on earth they're going to do. So in the absence of these physical meetings, these uh, meetings in person, is there any ad hoc measures being taken at this point? Well, I mean, that, that's that's the open question. Now, with the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting, it seems to have been decided that the Finns are not going to just um, postpone the meeting from this year and host it early in uh, 2021, that the next Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting would be as planned the 2021 meeting to be hosted in France, probably in Paris. Now, ordinarily, you expect that to be hosted sometime in the first half of 2021. But that would mean, even if it's possible to do by that stage, um, that we will have gone two years between Antarctic Treaty Consultative meetings. At the moment, there's no evidence Antarctic Treaty states are looking at any kind of plan B. And the plan B for the ATCM and for the Kamlar Commission meeting, I think would be a virtual meeting or a meeting in some place where states already have permanent diplomatic representation. Um, now, if you just let me come back to the Kamlar Commission meeting. There's a lot of talk down here in New Zealand and Australia about a trans-Tasman bubble because our governments in Australia and New Zealand have been quite successful in global terms at sort of uh, capping infections and uh, reducing uh, the problem of COVID-19, though that will not disappear until we find some permanent solution. But it's one thing to say that it may be possible over the next few months for Australia and New Zealand to start uh, having cross-border meetings. That's a totally different kettle of fish from a situation for a Kamlar Commission meeting where you want the representatives of 50 states from just about the entire planet to come what is a very considerable distance to a place called Hobart, where you have to have multiple aircraft changes and so on and so forth. So it doesn't look like we're going to return to the status quo ante anytime soon. 
So what could you do in place of that? Well, you could uh, you could hold meetings virtually, have the kind of a discussion that millions of us are having in our professional lives every day. Uh, the technical capacity to do that is there, except that for Antarctic meetings, these uh, discussions, these diplomatic discussions are held in four treaty languages, English, French, Spanish, and Russian. How feasible is it to hold a meeting with simultaneous translation into four languages over the internet, particularly when ordinarily these meetings are attended by hundreds of people and have dispersed uh, and diverse agendas and ordinarily meet in person for a week or so at a time. Now, if you can't, well, if you can find a way to do it remotely, do you actually have the legal mandate to do it? Since the first Antarctic uh, Treaty meeting in 1960, the meetings have always been held in person. The delegations turn up, they make decisions based upon, we'd say a show of hands, but in fact it's by consensus, um, of the people present. There's no tradition of doing this remotely. Some of the advice that feeds into the Antarctic Treaty consultative meeting and some of the advice that feeds into the Kamlar Commission meeting over the last 10 years has actually come from technical groups who themselves work remotely. But those are, those are groups mandated to work in very, very narrow areas, specific projects uh, and very, very sort of narrow field. It's completely different to seeing how readily people who have never done this before uh, could do this with big decision-making issues. And when we come to talk about the Kamlar Commission, that's about the kind of dividing up of the spoils, shall we say, uh, worth hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of dollars a year in terms of catch limits and so on. So it's complex to see how that can be done, particularly without a long preparatory time. The sort of other option that I have proposed is that we look at places where we all ordinarily have permanent high-level diplomatic representation. So it may not be possible for you to go to uh, get a meeting to, together in Hobart, where everybody has to travel great distances. But we all have big delegations uh, attached to the United Nations in New York. Would it be possible to hold a virtual Antarctic Treaty Consultative meeting or a virtual Kamlar Commission meeting using those experienced diplomats in New York who wouldn't themselves have to travel anywhere further? and who could be supported by the Kamlar Secretariat or the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting, supported by the Antarctic Treaty Secretariat, and all of the delegations supported electronically by their home chancellors. I'm not suggesting this would actually be a UN meeting. It certainly wouldn't. But it would take advantage of the proximity of high-grade diplomats who happen to be based in New York. Well, it seems like a like a viable or at least a a reasonable solution to a a novel situation. And in terms of the novelty of this uh, of this virus, and uh, also the novelty that uh, the media reports on Antarctica as still the only continent that really hasn't been exposed to a COVID nineteen, who is it that would be in charge of managing COVID nineteen in this current situation? I mean, of course, it's an unprecedented situation, but who would be the natural leaders to sort of make regulations on COVID-19 in particular? Is it this ATS consultative meeting? Or as you mentioned, Australia and New Zealand doing a pretty good job of managing COVID in their own countries. Could some particular country step up and, and make suggestions? Or is this the, the geopolitics of Antarctica is way too complicated for any, any sort of ad hoc solutions like that? Well, it is complicated, but I don't think that of itself rules out 
sort of sensible approaches. And as you said earlier, we're facing this not just in the Antarctic. The Antarctic is just perhaps at one end of the spectrum. You know, we've cancelled diplomatic meetings and we're presumably having to make arrangements on a whole range of things through other mechanisms. But there are particular difficulties in the Antarctic. The Antarctic Treaty consultative parties have never mandated the Antarctic Treaty Secretariat to really perform any executive functions. The power, the sort of legal and political standing in in the Antarctic system beyond the level of individual states has been achieved through the meeting of the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting and the meeting of the Kamlar Commission. So it's the the, the very thing that's a problem coming together um, has been the kind of default mechanism for making key decisions. So if you want to make a decision that we collectively shall do this, that or the other in Antarctica, you have to get an agreement by consensus of all the states that are decision-making countries. Now, what this means is that in the ATCM, you need to get the agreement of 29 states. And in the Kamlar Commission, you need to get the agreement of 25 states plus the European Union. Now, this, as we've seen in recent years over things like marine protected area designations and so on and so forth, can often be a kind of complex process. One would think there'd be more commonality of purpose around whatever measures we feel need to be taken in the Antarctic in response to COVID-19, but we can't pretend it's going to be simple. Now, if you can't, through the mechanisms I've discussed, you know, a postponed meeting, um, a virtual meeting, or a meeting held somewhere else that's more uh, logistically feasible, if you can't achieve one of those three things, it's going to be very difficult to get any collective decision-making. If you can't get collective decision-making, can you get lower-level technical decision-making? Well, yes, you can, and to an extent that has already happened. There's an organization called the Council of Managers of National Antarctic Programs, COMNAP, which is made up of the most of the operational agencies that, of the states that operate in the Antarctic. Uh, they were they developed an ad hoc committee on COVID-19 as early as mid-March. They've already been uh, discussing and advising within the auspices of COMNAP uh, what could be done, what would be useful to be done. And that's very positive. And that that will have some utility, particularly in relation to kind of operational things. But that's not itself a political, a policy-making forum. So if, for example, it was going to be something like, you know, should we try and shut down any possibility of tourism? Um, Should we argue that we should or shouldn't do particular sorts of um, big science projects in Antarctica? Um, That's not really the body mandated to do that. It comes back to the the political body of the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting or in the case of uh, fisheries activity, uh, the Kamlar Commission. And that a second point I'd make in relation to COMNAP is that COMNAP is much, well, is essentially focused on national Antarctic programs. So it has some ability to deal with issues in relation to the Antarctic Treaty and the Madrid Protocol, but it has much less obvious uh, traction when it comes to issues that might be associated with obligations, duties under Kamlar. If we can't uh, solve the entire field by 
either international arrangements or by these technical arrangements through bodies like COMNEP, um, then we do come down to individual states or groups of states um, making decisions and seeking to um, persuade other states that operate in their area uh, that these are good ideas. And the ways in which that could be effective would go something like this in my estimation. Uh, most activity in the Antarctic requires you to go through a southern gateway port, as they're called, whether it's tourism or national programs. So Ushuaia in Argentina, Punta Arenas in Chile, uh, Cape Town in South Africa, um, Hobart in uh, Australia, and Littleton here in New Zealand. Those ports are in a limited number of uh, states. They're all uh, decision-making states within the Antarctic Treaty system. So those states could say, well, we'll uh, liaise with the other countries that operate through our ports, any private operators come through our ports as well, and we'll try to impose some kind of control on it that way. And in the last resort, of course, uh, all of these states would have what's called port state jurisdiction, the rights to actually impose certain limits on the kind of activity that they'd be prepared to support from their ports uh, whether they'd let a ship come into their port if they thought it was going to pose a risk, or, you know, A, B, C, or D. So there's that mechanism as well. But the Antarctic is a complex sort of geopolitical space, and countries have tended to try to make decisions collectively where they can. So I think that would still be the preferred route uh, for most of them. Otherwise, we risk buying into all kinds of other problems you know, the growing antipathy between the West and China, um, whether a, a particular gateway state is uh, looking to be a softer touch than another in order to capture more trade and so on and so forth. One hopes that these issues wouldn't arise, but one couldn't entirely rule them out. It's a fascinating perspective, the uh, perhaps enhanced geopolitical significance of these gateway cities to Antarctica. I mean, you mentioned these these growing antipathies between uh, the West and China. There's this article recently in uh, the Atlantic magazine, a, a mainstream, uh, venerable publication that uh, covers international affairs. And uh, this, this article suggested that perhaps uh, China and Russia even are using this uh, COVID crisis uh, as an opportunity to expand their influence uh, when other countries are cutting their their scientific budgets and uh, reducing their activity in Antarctica. Do you see this as a possibility? Do you, do you agree with the sort of premise of that that this provides opportunities for China and Russia to uh, to sort of steal a march on the West, so to speak? Yes, I I read the Atlantic piece. Uh, I thought it was an interesting piece, but I did not agree with all of its premises and uh, certainly not its analysis in relation to China uh, and Russia. And I'll try to explain why. First of all, I think that the kind of operational decisions that states had been making right the way through till April about next season have not yet been seriously informed by COVID-19. So I think that you couldn't look at any state's behavior and say that it was um, a stratagem for using COVID-19 for its national advantage. And I think that you have to look at who is saying this. And the person who is saying this in the Atlantic article is largely a chap called Jennings, who's 
an Australian who is subscribes to the idea that there's some kind of Manichaean struggle existing, particularly in relation to China in what the Australians call the Australian Antarctic Territory. So there's a danger. I don't want to do uh, be unjust to Mr. Jennings, but there's a danger that it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy that we view China or the Australians view China as a sort of the black beast in the Antarctic. And every issue that comes up confirms us in our belief uh, that it is that black beast. I'm not, I'm not so paranoid as that myself. Now, I think that we shall see in another five or six months to what extent a number of countries' Antarctic programs in the 2020-2021 Antarctic summer are affected by COVID-19. I think they all will be to a greater or lesser extent. The problem that all of them will have will be that most states pretty well all of them, have got a long way to go before they get to the Antarctic. And their ships and aircraft have got to go through other people's countries. And the welcome that you're going to get, even for an official activity, will depend upon the confidence that you've got good measures in place to prevent infection. We know that globally, cruise ships uh, and aircraft arriving in countries even returning our own citizens, have been one of the prime ways in which we've bumped up the numbers of infections in our countries. I don't think governments are going to be prepared to sort of uh, recklessly allow that. So it's going to be harder to get to and from the Antarctic. There'll be concern about wise and sensible steps that could be taken within the Antarctic to avoid infecting each other there. Uh, and there's going to be a need to make sure that we don't contaminate the natural world that we're going down there to study. And the states that are responsible for search and rescue in the southern hemisphere, uh, four or five big zones that go down to the South Pole from the southern cone countries, those states are going to be quite keen to ensure that if they have to go to aid somebody, that is not going to be unreasonably burdensome on the basis of additional COVID-19 risks. So there's a whole bunch of these issues. It's very difficult to kind of bolt any of them down right now. But I think that most states are going to find their programs impacted in one way or another for the next Antarctic season. Now, it may be that some states are less encumbered uh, than others. One would have to say that the states that have had shocking responses to their domestic COVID-19 infections, and the United States would have to be top of that list right now, perhaps closely followed by Russia, and as we now see Brazil and the United Kingdom, those countries are going to be more badly affected, say, than New Zealand, Finland, or Australia that have had rather uh, more successful approaches. Alan, you speak about the the upcoming uh, Antarctic uh, summer research season. You've written uh, some articles about time perspectives when it comes to COVID-19 in Antarctica. Perhaps you could elaborate a bit upon that. What some of the shorter term, medium term, and longer term implications of this uh, pandemic on uh, Antarctic activity, both in terms of scientific research and uh, tourism as well? Let me start with Antarctic tourism. Now, we've seen a lot of uh, stories and positive stories that the Antarctic is the only continent essentially unaffected by COVID-19. All the evidence is that we have not had COVID-19 on any of our Antarctic stations, and that's brilliant. And they've got into their winter hibernation, though, of course, they're still working hard. But we did see COVID-19 
on at least two Antarctic tourism ships in the Antarctic Peninsula. In the case of one of them, uh, a vessel called the uh, Greg Mortimer, over 60% of the people on board that vessel uh, were infected with COVID-19. They found that they had tremendous trouble uh, getting a port to allow them to come in. Eventually, Uruguay came to their aid and their passengers were evacuated back to their home countries, a lot of them from Australia uh, and some from New Zealand. So there has been this sort of searing experience in the Antarctic about, well, how dreadful it is to be on a ship with COVID-19. We know that globally, the cruise industry has been very badly affected and very high profile cases where visiting cruise ships have been uh, implicated in terrestrial spread of COVID-19. So I think that the sort of situation facing the Antarctic tourism industry is not terribly good. They've just had, in the peninsula at least, a frightening season. The companies that also operate in the Arctic will immediately have faced an essentially closed down Arctic season for all intents and purposes. And when it comes to the 2020-21 Antarctic summer, an industry which whose clients tend to be above average age have to travel a long distance, often from the northern hemisphere by aircraft multiple aircraft to get to the points of disembarkation to then go to the Antarctic, one would have to say that one would expect a severely depressed Antarctic operating season for the Antarctic tourism industry in 2021. Now, there aren't very many uh, models for the current pandemic, but there is perhaps one that's interesting in relation to Antarctic tourism. The global financial crisis really stopped what had been a, a very steep rise in Antarctic tourism over more than a decade. And it depressed that trade such that it seems to have taken about a decade for the Antarctic tourism industry to have recovered, as you measure that by passenger numbers. Very crude measure. Other factors over a decade obviously have some bearing. The heavy fuel oil prohibition, the uh, introduction of the International Polar Code and so on and so forth. But the prime problem for the Antarctic tourism was recovering from the economic downturn of the global financial crisis. So in addition to the immediate disincentive to go on cruise ships in the Antarctic and the difficulties of getting to them next year, if we've still got an interrupted international transport network, will be exacerbated, one imagines, by the global downturn that most of our politicians and economists are predicting. So I think that the Antarctic tourism industry is in for a rough period. And at this point, it's impossible to say much more than that, but it's at least possible that it will take a, a number of years and perhaps a decade to recover to anything like its pre-COVID-19 level. That eases the problem of managing Antarctic tourism, perhaps. We don't know whether this will entirely close it down, but it looks like it will be sufficiently depressed. For the next operational Antarctic season, national programs will, in addition to all of those very similar kind of logistic problems, how do they get their people from, say, in the case of the United States or from where you are in Sweden? How do they get those people down to the Antarctic in a time where international communications are rather uh, much about with? And how do they do this safely? And how can they guarantee they get those people back whilst it's still possible that we'd have a second or third wave of COVID-19 and we don't yet have any 
vaccinations, etc., etc. Very familiar kind of discourse, not just in the Antarctic. But the additional problem that then kicks in is for some of the big Antarctic programs, one can be confident that in one way or another, uh, there'll be some business as usual, even at lower levels. But for some of the smaller states, weaker economies involved in the Antarctic, it may be that the general economic downturn associated with post-COVID-19 could severely curtail their capacity to run an Antarctic program. If I gave you give you one sort of uh, example, Ecuador was due to host an Antarctic Treaty consultative meeting a couple of years ago, but it, the country went into austerity uh, measures. The president of Ecuador instigated a whole series of austerity measures, and as a consequence, Ecuador had to announce that it couldn't host the Antarctic Treaty consultative meeting. It's not inconceivable that a number of countries will find themselves with resourcing problems when it comes to supporting their Antarctic programs. There are some countries where their Antarctic agency is part of a broader uh, scientific or research agency uh, which has responsibilities in other areas, including in COVID-19 response and, and research. I think that's the case for the Polish Antarctic program, which I think is part of the Academy of Sciences unit, which also has to deal with all of these other things. Now, my detailed knowledge of these of individual countries is, like everybody's, fairly limited. But there are a whole range of ways in which COVID-19 is going to resonate through our national Antarctic programs over the next, uh, certainly this coming Antarctic season. And one imagines um, for maybe one or two beyond that. And following up on that, uh, in terms of this short, medium and long term perspective, do you think that this crisis will have any lasting implications for the ATS itself and how Antarctica is governed going forward? Well, well, it could. But the answer to that really depends on how we deal with it immediately. For example, as many of us have discovered, after the initial inconvenience of working remotely, there are some situations where remote committee meetings and discussions professional development sessions are actually more effective than meeting all in the same room. So it may be that if the Antarctic system developed a good way of doing a, a kind of interim a remote or virtual meeting, it might decide that it could do more of its routine stuff in that way. The risk in the Antarctic context is the risk that we are all discussing in every other context. The further atomization of professional society, the risk that without meetings in person, agendas are captured, et cetera, et cetera. But these are generic problems that we're having to deal with across the board. If I come back to your you know, reference to the Atlantic paper, uh, I think that one thing that the Atlantic paper touched on incidentally, Jennings uh, was concerned about China and Russia taking advantage of the COVID-19 situation. And I said I wasn't persuaded at this point that that was, that was possible. But there's nothing, there's nothing that gives us absolute confidence at this point that it doesn't affect how states view the future of the Antarctic. And I would throw in, if we're having that kind of discussion, the interesting and strange world of the Trump administration in the United States. I mean, I think that in, a, in a world where you have the Bolsonaros in Brazil, the Trumps in the States, Putin in Russia and the Chinese, it, it is difficult to be confident that you couldn't get kind of phase changes in the way in which 
those states approach the Antarctic or indeed anything else. And I think we need to, I don't think one can make any sensible predictions about that at this point, apart from saying it ought to be a kind of ongoing project of watching that most carefully and making sure that if we are going to see changes, we make them as um, benign and positive as possible and not see them exploited to capture greater hegemonic control of the Antarctic or decision-making. Is there any countervailing forces to that uh, scenario? I mean, you mentioned many small countries maybe won't be able to afford to participate in uh, Antarctic governance in the future. Is there any way to balance this perhaps future scenario? Well, it's been my, um, some people have said, my, my obsession for some, for some years that we ought to make a more of a commitment to internationalizing research in the Antarctic. Uh, what matters in the Antarctic, if we pick the obvious example, fundamental research essential to understanding climate change. It doesn't matter who actually um, makes those discoveries, but it matters that we do get that information. And it seemed to me for more than a decade that it is rather eccentric that we still have international Antarctic science in the Antarctic predicated upon separate national and nationalistically driven stations long after we managed to agree to have a single international space station. Now, you know, that's no longer a perfect uh, model for anything. But I think that if we are faced with increased logistical difficulties getting to the Antarctic, and we're faced with all states, not just smaller states, all states, having less resources to to, um, uh, conduct their Antarctic research, we ought to be looking for ways that we can more effectively collaborate. And one way to do that would be to share our stations and our other facilities. We already share our ideas. It would be nice if we could also share the hardware. Alan Hemmings, Associate Professor at the Gateway Antarctica Center for Antarctic Studies and Research at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand. Thanks very much for joining us here on the podcast. It's really been an enlightening conversation here and a very timely topic. Thank you, Eric. You can subscribe to the Polar Geopolitics podcast on most major platforms, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Acast. Check out our website, polargeopolitics.com. Get in touch by email, polargeopolitics.podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. Music by Mark Vandenbosch. Voiceover, Keith Foster. Logo design by Daniel Brockman. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks for listening to Polar Geopolitics.